Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carbonell and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hi guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I sit down with Savina Rosova, Director of Research at Dimensional Fund Advisors. Our conversation starts with Savina's story of coming to the U.S. from communist Bulgaria to studying under Ken French at Dartmouth to eventually joining DFA and her recent recognition by Barron's as one of the most 100 influential women in finance. We then get into an in-depth discussion around the value, quality, and investment factors and how Sabina and the firm think about these in the context of building investment strategies for the long run and helping investors succeed when investing with DFA. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Dimensional's Sabina Rosola. Hi, Sabina. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, Justin. Nice to be here. I first uh, read about you in Barron's earlier this year, where the publication selected you as one of the most 100 influential women in finance. Um, you and others received this recognition, uh, and you were selected based on your achievements, your leadership, your influence within your organizations and beyond, and for your potential to shape the financial industry of the future. So congratulations on that recognition. And were, 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 were you surprised to hear, uh, when you received that? Yeah, it was a great honor, uh, to be among those 100 women because they're very, very well recognized, uh, names on that list. Uh, but, um, yeah, uh, I was very thrilled and honored to be there and I hope to kind of live up to that standard going forward as well. Yeah, that's great. I, I, I would imagine that, you know, you feel very happy and excited and privileged, but at the same time, humbled to be, you know, recognized with some of the other, um, women on that list. Um, we're going to talk about your role at dimensional factor investing, of course, uh, the value and investment factors and how you're thinking about long-term factor investing with things like higher inflation. And I think a number of other things that you're probably thinking about, um, in your role there, but I wanted to start out with you by talking about the story and the path of your life and how you went from growing up in communist Bulgaria to studying under Ken French, one of the thought leaders in empirical finance, um, at Dartmouth to your position today as head of research at DFA. So maybe to start, if you could just share with us and our listeners, the story of how you got to where you are today. Sure. Uh, as you said, I was born in Bulgaria, uh, East Europe in 1981, almost 41 years ago. And, uh, at that point, Bulgaria was, uh, in a communist regime. Um, and eight, 1989 is when communism ended in Bulgaria and after that, it started the transition, a very slow and painful transition from communism to capitalism. And a lot of, um, you know, a lot of economic problems, uh, in the country, the quality of education, public education went down. And so when it, uh, came time for me to, uh, apply for college, um, I decided that I should try to get my college education at the best place out there globally possible, uh, meaning the U.S. So I applied to uh, several Ivy League colleges and Dartmouth College was the one that admitted me and gave me full financial aid, which I needed to be able to attend Dartmouth. And so I ended up at Dartmouth in 2000. Uh, I studied there mathematics and economics. Both my parents have uh, 
master's degree in economics. So um, I kind of loved economics from a very when I was very little. And um, when I got to Dartmouth, I already had an idea that I wanted to do a further degree after college, like a PhD in economics or finance. So I started working as a research assistant for um, a professor at the econ department at Dartmouth, but then. At some point, he said, you know, if you want to focus on finance, you better work as a research assistant for someone who is a professor in finance. So they connected me with Ken French and I was his uh, research assistant there in Dartmouth for over a year. And, um, and then at some point Ken said like, well, what are you thinking about after college? And I said, well, I was thinking of applying to a PhD program immediately to start after college. So it's probably better to get some real world experience before doing the PhD. And I ended up following his advice and not only following his advice, but actually he introduced me to the dimension of this firm he was consulting, uh, based in back then Santa Monica, California. I went and visited that, um, dimension in 2003 in the fall, really liked the research team back then, uh, and decided to join the firm, uh, after college, stayed there for three years in the research team, and then went to University of Chicago, Booth School of Business, did my PhD there in finance, and then decided to come back to the emotional, uh, and have been a very happy member of the team here at the emotional ever since. The great, great, great story. And I think a motivational story for, um, many, many women and also many, uh, people that might not come from areas where the clear path is to an Ivy league school and into a career in finance. Um, even though your parents obviously, like you said, had masters in economics and probably pushed you academically, you know, the path wasn't an easy one for you by any means. Nope. One of the, um, many challenges in doing research, especially in the investment area is, you know, kind of narrowing down where you want to focus on. And I'll just read you a quote here from, I think someone you work with, um, his name was Robert Burton. He's a Nobel laureate in economics and a resident scientist as dimensional. He said this, he had this basically to say about you. He said, you know, she thinks creative, she creatively improves on the, on the research while she implements it. And so I wanted to kind of ask you at a high level, before we get into some of the details on the research you're doing, um. How do you think about the process of deciding where you want to focus your research, where you want to hone in your time, your effort to uncover new things, whether it's to be with factors, um, or other things in investing, how do you kind of narrow that down? How do you narrow down the scope and, and find areas that you really want to focus on? What does uh, that thought process is, uh, what the purpose of research at Dimensional? And, uh, Dimensional Fund Advisor is a systematic, um, um, investment management company that focuses on equities and fixed income and aims to provide, uh, clients with systematic, robust, uh, investment solutions that go beyond indexing that seek to add value in a kind of long-term, um, sustainable manner, uh, without trying to outguess market prices, but embracing them. So knowing what Dimensional is about, uh, the role of research at Dimensional is not to, again, uh, identify mispricings out there or, um, um, give calls on how to time markets or sectors, but all of research that they mentioned is to provide thought leadership, um, to our clients and to support our investment process. Um, so when we do research, uh, what we focus on is, uh, can we 
provide clients with a framework for how to think better about a problem they face when investing about investing. For example, for a lot of clients these days, ESG is top of mind these days, environmental, social, and governance, um, values, concerns, and how to kind of integrate them in your investment process. And um, one area where we saw there is like a need to provide a better framework was how to think about the, the link between those issues, economics, investment, and investment stewardship. So about a year and a half ago, probably we put like uh, all the paper on the economics of uh, climate change, uh, starting with the climate science, talking about the economics, how you link climate science to economics, carbon, um, cost of, um, social cost of carbon, and then implications for investing, implications for investment stewardship. Right now we are finishing a similar paper on the uh, economics of corporate governance. And so that type of deep dive thought leadership is one type of research we choose to do a dimensional in an effort to uh, provide clients with a robust framework to think about important topics uh, related to investments. The other is, as I mentioned, our role to support the investment process and dimensional. It is a unique investment process that um, seeks to add value every step of the investment way in a systematic manner from how you design portfolio, which which drivers of returns or factors you focus on, how you design portfolios, how you manage them, and how you trade them. And so a lot of research we do is uh, related to uh, every step of that investment process. Can we do better? And I never will probably talk about different uh, steps in the evolution of that process that they mentioned, but examples there are like our research on drivers of equity or fixed income returns. So what are the, the ones we should focus on? How do, should we implement them in our portfolios? And also uh, topics related to kind of day-to-day -day portfolio management. Uh, we had a paper a couple of years ago on the securities lending market, the fees you can get or observe in the market for borrowing stocks and their link to um, uh, short-term differences in expected stock returns and how can you take this into account running portfolios on a daily basis. So kind of balancing the need to help clients build a robust framework to think about uh, different important topics and help dimensional improve upon uh, its investment process on an ongoing basis. I want to ask you about value, but first I want to pick up on something you said about ESG. And you know, ESG is always something I've struggled with a little bit because I've sort of just been trained to say, all right, if I'm going to get a premium, I need to suffer. Like in the process of getting that premium, I, there needs to be a reason I get it. And so I struggle a little bit with ESG because, you know, I feel like I'm doing good, but at the same time I'm getting a premium. So I'm wondering just what do you think about ESG, you know, based on your research? Uh, there's a lot of, uh, you can address it conceptually uh, with something very simple like valuation equation or valuation theory saying kind of really to what you mentioned. Um, price today of any type of investment uh, doesn't have to be even like stocks or bonds, broadly speaking, is driven by what you expect to get in the future and the discount rate you apply. Uh, when it comes to, let's say, ESG investing, if we believe that there is like an aggregate shift to certain types of companies because of changing kind of um, preferences, values, concerns, uh, then those, the price of those companies are likely to go up if they are like more, let's say, sustainable. Uh, and the discount rate is like the expected rate of return is going to go down. Uh, there's no free lunch, as you say. And vice versa, you can expect companies which are kind of people move away from uh, to see their prices falling and discount rates going up. The, uh, what, however, for that to happen, what you need is 
a, a big consensus on which are the green or the better companies and the ESG and which are the worst companies. As you know, there's so much disagreement across different ESG ratings, metrics, considerations, values, concerns that seeing that sh uh, shift um, for particular companies is very hard to, to um, in the data. And as a result, when we ran uh, some empirical studies on uh, emissions, even data and uh, stock returns, bond returns, we didn't see a struggling there at all. Okay. Um, I want to move on to value. Um, and it, speaking of pain, I mean, value, obviously there, there has been some significant pain, um, you know, in, until the most recent couple of years where, you know, those of us that are valued investors have seen a nice bounce back there, there was a pretty rough decade before that. And, and that decade led to many people saying, you know, here are some reasons why value doesn't work anymore, whether it's too many people are doing it, or, you know, in a world of technology value doesn't work. And I'm just wondering what you think of that. I mean, did you see anything in the data to suggest there's either a lower value premium than there has been in the past or that value doesn't work anymore? Yeah, whenever premiums go to periods of severe underperformance, people start soul searching. Uh, am I targeting the right premium? Am I trying to capture it in the right way? And we as investors should never forget that um, capital markets are extremely noisy, uh, volatile, and so are premiums, including the equity premium for that matter. But the value premium is uh, volatile and can go through uh, pronounced periods of underperformance. And we just kind of have been through such a period, actually not even the last decade, from the last two decades, if you look at it. But um, one experiment uh, that highlights kind of how sensitive uh, things are to, um, to noise in, in just a few days of returns uh, over the last kind of starting in 2010, let's say, uh, you mentioned the last decade. If you look at kind of the average spread in returns between high and low price to book stocks, between growth and value stocks, uh, on average, they, uh, growth stocks outperform value by about 2%, uh, up to March of this year, even if you take like last year, which was a good year for value in the U.S. So that's kind of 2% underperformance. Uh, you can start thinking, are we living in a new normal or so on? But then when you take a look at like, what happens if I drop the 20 days in that huge period from 2010 to the present uh, with the uh, worst value day returns? Not relative, just absolute value performance. What happens? Suddenly you have an outperformance of value stocks over that period by about 1% on average per year. So 20 days basically shift from growth outperform to value uh, performing better than growth which means not that those days weren't in the data, not that we didn't suffer from that, but it just comes to tell you if it's 20 days that can shift things around so dramatically, do we really live in a new normal? Should we be soul searching or just accepting that premiums are volatile and there will be bad periods for those premiums and that's going back to risk and reward unrelated. And there is a risk in pursuing those premiums which brings us to the importance of how you implement your pursuit of those premiums. There are ways to mitigate risk, to, uh, to do it in a more, um, in a reliable manner. And I don't know if you saw this too, but this kind of gets back to something you said, you know, one of the things we were seeing too, is a lot of the outperformance from growth was multiple expansion. So the spreads were getting wider between value and growth, but value companies weren't actually doing that badly. Um, you know, on a fundamental basis, they seem to be doing pretty well. I mean, I don't know if you found that as well. Absolutely. Yes, we, we do, uh, run, uh, price to book, price to earnings, uh, kind of valuation 
spreads uh, between value and growth stocks in the U.S. developed emerging markets uh, on an ongoing basis. That's one of the most popular charts. Our clients come to us and ask for updates pretty much every Monday, every quarter. And what you see there is exactly what you described. Uh, the spread is, has been widening in recent years because of growth stocks valuation ratios going very, very high relative to historical um, averages and value stocks kind of staying where they have been, roughly speaking. Yeah. One of the challenges you alluded to in, in you know, measuring value is sort of how you do it. You know, there, there's uh, some people prefer to use a single metric where they look at value in that way. Others prefer to use a composite where they put all the metrics together and do sort of a ranking system and take the highest combined scores. How do you think about that? What do you think the best way to measure value is? The National has been uh, investing in value since the 90s, um, in value stocks. Uh, so we've been getting questions on the value metrics since the 90s, so many, many years, for many years. One of the common questions is, is it better to pursue it with a single metric or with multiple metrics? And if you, many people from the outside would say that dimensional pursues value with a single metric. That is not accurate, uh, but um, generally speaking, our research on um, kind of value starts with individual metrics versus blended metrics has shown that um, a blended metric is no better uh, than even like a price to books or over the full period or over the last 30 years, uh, returns would have been reliably similar, whether you use like a composite of price to earnings, price to cash flow, price to book versus any of those individual metrics. Uh, however, the reason why we prefer to use price to book as a primary metric in how we uh, identify value versus growth stocks is uh, that it tends to generate lower turnover. In this the type of considerations that you would see a lot in our investment process at Dimensional, we think deeply about implementation, how we, uh, how does pursuit of higher expected returns interact with diversification risk trading costs. Uh, and as a result of that, uh, we prefer to focus on a metric that's a little bit more stable, lower turnover with similar kind of uh, performance over the long term. Now, you might think that uh, where is this higher turnover for the composite metric coming from? It's coming from metrics like price to earnings and price to cash flow, which are much more volatile because earnings and cash flow tend to be more, more volatile. People often think that when you blend a few metrics together, you get rid of the noise um, in each of those, inherent in each of those metrics. Might be. But uh, what, what you don't get rid of is that that noise, uh, that generally with a composite metric, you don't reduce the turnover as much as you would hope. So price to book is still has lower turnover historically than a composite metric and meaningfully lower turnover, which affects the end returns anybody consumes because they are net of the trading costs required to deliver a premium. Picking up on the idea of price to book, you know, one of the big criticisms of price to book in recent years is this idea that there are way more intangible assets you know, in the economy than there were. I mean, there's, there's different measures of it, but you know, if you look back 20 years, intangibles weren't that big of an issue and they've become a bigger issue over time. And you wrote a paper called Internally Developed Intangibles and Expected Stock Returns. And your conclusion was a little bit different than a lot of people who say, you know, you need to account for these intangibles when looking at price to book. So I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk about what you found in the paper. Absolutely. Um... Uh, as the value premium was um, underperforming, delivering negative returns in the last decade uh, or longer, uh, as you mentioned, there was a lot of self-searching has been in terms of 
is there anything wrong with how we pursue value with the metrics and, and the topic of intangible service of this potentially the main culprit for why metrics like price to book, but not only this type of metric, uh, are um, no longer relevant potentially for capturing value. And so, as they mentioned, uh, one of the things we, um, that determines how we proceed with research is always keep an open mind. So we decided to actually look into that with a very open mind. And when we started kind of looking at intangibles, first, the, the one um, kind of interesting thing I learned myself is that, for example, in the U.S., um, the first kind of patents uh, were issued in 1790, and the first trademarks were registered in 1870. Why is this relevant? Because intangibles are all the assets of a company that you cannot touch. This means... Uh, patents, trademarks, franchises, copyrights, computer software, brand, reputation, goodwill. And so it's important to keep in mind that actually intangibles have been with us for a very long time as part of the uh, kind of economic landscape. And Mickey Mouse, which is a very kind of recognizable intangible for one famous publicly traded company out there, uh, was kind of first kind of introduced to the world in uh, 1928. Uh, and in 1940, business started trading as a public company. So we've got publicly traded companies with very kind of well-known intangibles in them for a while, and yet we've been able to systematically identify value versus growth stocks. Now, what we did in the research is um, clarify that there are two types of intangibles from accounting perspectives. Uh, the ones that you develop internally through activities like research and development, um, advertising, training your personnel, etc. And these are not reported on the balance sheet, not capitalized. They are expensed uh, through different um, items on the income statement. And these are the ones that we do not observe easily. The other ones that you acquire by buying another company are called externally developed intangibles, and those are actually reported on the balance sheet. They do show up in assets, they do show up in book equity. So uh, in order to see whether we are missing a lot by not having the internally developed intangibles in book equity, you have to estimate the internally developed intangibles. And uh, we, in our research, uh, used like a well-developed method in, uh, um, in, in used in academic and industry papers on that, which is to accumulate over time companies adding this spending plus a portion of its LGNA selling general administrative spending to basically compute a star, uh, an accumulation of knowledge capital from R&D and organizational capital from SGNA spending. And putting those together, you can get a value of an estimate of the internal intangibles for each company at a given point in time. Um, I would say the main difference between our research and uh, other papers looking at intangibles out there is that at that point, once we computed the numbers for our companies, we did not immediately rush to run swords on value and profitability with and without adjustment for the estimate. We actually first looked at the data. How do the data look? Do they make sense? Which are the companies that show up with the largest in, uh, estimated intangibles? Uh, and so what we noticed, there are lots of noise in the data, lots of caveats with the data. One example that can easily resonate with your audience is um, Disney, for example, did not report explicitly SG&A and R&D until 2014. So for Disney, up until that point, your estimate is zero. Uh, and then Sears 
2018 was filing for bankruptcy. Its book equity was negative. Market cap was close to zero. Our internal estimate was over $10 billion of intangibles at that point in time. So lots of examples of um, noise in the data. Was, even with that, we decided, okay, let's proceed, knowing it's there, the estimates are very noisy and see what they tell us about internal intangibles, the share of company's assets. What we found is that since the 80s, internal intangibles have represented a very steady about uh, share of company assets, about 25% of company assets. So um, in the U.S. and then outside the U.S. for developed ex-U.S. markets, we looked as well about 20%, emerging market even less, 10%. So what we have been missing is uh, potentially from um, the assets and the book equity of the company is not that large, at least as a percent of uh, assets uh, of those companies over time. We did find the results consistent with the industry that generally those internal intangibles have been largest for what you would expect, tech companies, healthcare companies in the U.S. and outside the U.S. When we started doing sorts on value and profitability to see how would the value premium have uh, been or the profitability premium if you were use adjusted metrics for those noisy estimates of intangibles, what we generally saw is the value premium would have been a little bit better um, well, if you had adjusted your metrics for a uh, price to book for uh, internally developed intangibles, but a lot of that was driven by sectors, just a little bit more focus on technology. We know the tech sector did really well in the last 10, 15 years, so that would have helped. But once you control for sector exposure, the, basically the difference between adjusted and unadjusted value premium disappeared across regions. So profitability, actually, it wasn't positive to begin with in the U.S. market. It was better to not have been, uh, have adjusted than adjusted. So overall, and when you look at the two premiums together, uh, which is, we pursued them in an integrated manner here at Dimensional, you don't see any meaningful difference between adjusted and unadjusted. That doesn't mean we shouldn't take uh, intangibles into account. That doesn't mean price to book is perfect or any other metric is perfect. But what uh, this whole research taught us is, there's a lot of noise in the data and incorporating noise in estimates in our daily metrics for daily implementation might not be the best way to go forward. What might be a better way to go forward is to think about tightening our sector controls in how we run our, let's say, value and profitability strategies. Currently, we have uh, dynamic sector caps in there and um, having a bit tighter sector controls forcing the comparisons to be a bit more within sector than across sectors might make um, the, uh, for a better, more robust, more cost-efficient adjustment for internal intangibles. Your, your point about them being difficult to value is one we struggled with as well. You know, if you think about like a company like Google, I mean, if, if I want to see what is their search algorithm worth, I mean, trying to use what they spent on R&D over time is very difficult. It's probably worth many multiples of what they spent on R&D. Or if you look at their brand, it's probably worth many multiples of their SG&A spending. And so that, to your point, that is very difficult to try to figure out what these are actually worth. Um, have you looked at anything, and you may not have done it yet, you know, one of the things we've seen with some of our guests is they're maybe starting to get into using things like machine learning, maybe to look at patent filings or things like that, trying to use more advanced techniques, knowing that these things are very hard to value based on reported financials. Have you looked at anything like that yet? Uh, not for um, uh, uh, estimating the value of intangibles. I'll tell you what we did and then... Um, how we are thinking about machine learning, it could be beneficial for an estimate like that. 
And what we did uh, last year as an additional way to try and even like just see how noisy those estimates of internal intangibles are uh, is look at companies uh, which are were publicly traded and then uh, became acquired by another publicly traded company. Why is it kind of interesting and relevant to look at those kind of uh, M&A deals where one public company buys another public company? Because in that case, you have uh, basically an estimate of internal intangibles for the target company that you could have compiled from their publicly, public filings when they were trading. And then you have the recognition of those intangibles at the point of acquisition of that company by the other public company in their public statements. So you can compare your estimate before the acquisition with the estimate right after the acquisition record with the number recognized. And what we saw looking at 730 M&A deals, uh, um, such deals in the U.S. market from 2011 to 2020, so very recent, is huge dispersion between our estimate right before the acquisition and the, the paid amount for uh, those uh, same intangibles uh, uh, right uh, uh, announced at the deal. And uh, in 25% of the cases that recognized was more than double the estimate. In 25% of the cases that recognized was less than 30% of what we have estimated. So a lot, a lot of noise. And some of it, you can actually see what's coming. Uh, we, we dived into some of the examples. There was one example with a uh, pharmaceutical company buying a small biotech company. And what you see there is that the historical spending on R&D of that uh, little company was relatively small, like a, a few hundred million dollars, but it was bought for a lot more, like over $10 billion. Because right at the point when it's uh, cancer-related kind of drug was F getting FDA approvals. So there is now a much cleaner picture of what the potential benefit from those intangibles could be. And then we talked actually the bigger company after the acquisition, how much revenue it uh, got from the drug in the next five years very close actually to what it paid to acquire the small company. So sometimes the numbers seem very different, but you can actually justify them uh, exposed. And of course it's market assessment at that point in time. But in terms of machine learning, generally speaking, there's a lot of, um, as you mentioned, not just for estimating intangibles, but in asset pricing, in finance and in investment, in uh, discussion whether machine learning techniques can be useful for better investing. Um, and I'd say that machine learning is very good in identifying, uh, nonlinear patterns, links, uh, and also interactions across different characteristics when you have very rich data, very, um, also reliable, accurate data, as well as, um, when you expect to find persistent relations in the data, because it, what machine learning does is basically tell you about something that it sees in the data uh, as methodology. So it's by definition still backward looking. We're looking at past data to infer a relation. Um, what uh, we are care all as uh, investors, of course, is what's going to happen in the future. And uh, what many again underestimate is the lack of predictability in financial markets. So in general, with investing, um, there are very few things that you can, uh, identify as reliable, persistent patterns in the data towards the main things there are kind of premiums coming from basic valuation theory that justify like the size premium, the value premium, the profitability slash quality premium, but a lot else is most likely data mining. 
And so the big caveat with machine learning when applied to investing is it will uncover patterns. And it will uncover patterns that we know well or because they've been documented even like simpler, more or like um, from econometric perspective study. But a lot of those patterns, if they're not backed by uh, basic kind of investment valuation theory, do you expect them to persist in the future? And to me, the answer probably is not really. You mentioned some of the other factors, and I wanted to take a quick tour through some of the other factors outside of value, as much as I could talk about value all day, since that's my uh, my favorite factor. But uh, m moving on to momentum. Uh, momentum is, is something that dimensional sense tends to think about a little differently than some other practitioners. I'm wondering, what do you, what do you, how do you think about incorporating momentum into your investment process? Yeah, sure. Um, momentum uh, has been kind of a little bit of a puzzle in uh, finance. Uh, because it's hard to link it uh, yet directly to valuation theory. Why should momentum exist? But again, um, at the mission, we do keep an open mind and we uh, kind of go where the data and theory take us. So for momentum, what we can say, it is a pervasive and persistent return pattern out there, uh, which means that uh, you should acknowledge it and you should ideally incorporate it uh, in your investment process. And that's what we do. But trying to actively pursue it uh, can be um, risky from two perspectives. One, do you really have a good story for why you should expect momentum to persist in the future? And second, uh, momentum is a very high turnover type of signal, um, a, a very fast decaying six to 12 months out. The recent winners are no longer outperforming the market. The recent losers are no longer underperforming on average. So you'd require to trade a lot to capture it. Then on the second part, can you overcome that, that high turnover with just, uh, and still get some positive um, return from momentum? The best way to, to talk about it is look at the data and the performance of funds. And um, I'm sure you're familiar, we have this uh, study of momentum funds, funds with momentum in their name, mutual funds and ETFs. Um, and looking at funds with more than three years of performance to basically since their inception to today, see what their performance has been relative to their kind of category uh, benchmark and over their lifetime, what was the performance of the momentum premium? Was it positive or was it negative? What we find is that for those 24 funds we identified, uh, most of them actually underperformed their category benchmark. Uh, but uh, at the same time, the momentum premium was quite, on average, positive over the time they existed. So this kind of, for us, is a pretty compelling argument that uh, trying to pursue momentum actively is probably not a very good approach to consider momentum. What is a good approach to consider momentum is when you decide what to buy and sell on a daily basis. And at Dimensional, we do have a daily implementation process. so. We go through those decisions every day to take into account which stocks have been recently going up relative to peers, which stocks have been going down. And um, what we do at the mission is we um, underweight uh, the purchase of securities on downward momentum. We underweight the sale of securities on upward momentum. What this does is two things. It doesn't force you to actively pursue momentum and incur trading costs in the process. And if momentum stops showing up in the data tomorrow, you actually haven't incurred any meaningful costs by considering it because we refrain from purchasing or selling a few stocks 
well, guess what? We have very broadly diversified performance. So refraining from being with or underweighing their purchaser sale would not materially affect the overall characteristics of the portfolio. So this, this is a robust, in our opinion, way to take into account momentum. Uh, momentum is also often perceived as a great complement to value and position as like, if you have a value investment, then a momentum investment could be a good diversifier. What we see in the data is that the correlation between a value-focused uh, portfolio and a momentum-focused portfolio varies a lot through time. Uh, sometimes there's a big overlap between the two portfolios, sometimes there's very little. From that kind of asset allocation perspective, profitability, focusing on high profitability, high quality stocks might be a much um, more sensible complement to a value portfolio because the overlap between high profitability stocks, which valuation theory tells us are high expected return stocks and value stocks is uh, a um, more beneficial from asset allocation perspective. Yeah, you talked about, I was listening to uh, your CIO, Gerard O'Reilly's interview on the Rational Reminder podcast, which was excellent. And you just talked about something he referenced, which I actually didn't know, which is very interesting about the way you guys sort of rebalance your portfolios. It really is a, a gradual process over time, right? You're not, you're not someone who's saying like, here's our monthly rebalancing date. We're going to rebalance our portfolios. You're using these factors like momentum to sort of gradually make the adjustments over time. Is that a right way to characterize it? Is it Absolutely. We uh, have the view that um, when you execute a uh, Premium, you want to stay focused on the premiums every day because you don't know when they are going to show up. Remember my comment about 20 days, meaningfully changing what you see about volume growth in the last 20, uh, 10 or so years. So you don't know which day the premiums will show up. You want to stay focused on them every day, but, um, which means that you are going to incrementally daily rebalance a little bit your portfolio to keep it focused on the premiums. This means every day you are selling a little bit of the stocks that are no longer high expected returns, then you are buying a little bit more of the stocks that are and taking momentum into consideration every day in that process. You mentioned profitability, which I think you've used in your investment process since 2012, I believe. Um, how do you think about profitability? How do, how do you think about measuring it? We started, uh, as you mentioned, uh, the research and then implementation of profitability in 2012. Um, in response uh, to an academic paper by Robert Novi Marx, the other side of, of value or gross profitability, where he highlighted that actually profitability could be a, a meaningful driver um, of uh, expected stock returns, just like value and size. Uh, and at that point, uh, we first did our internal research with uh, the measure of profitability that Robert had in his paper, which started very high on top of the income statement, just literally sales minus uh, cost of goods sold divided by assets in his analysis. And then from there, in a typical dimensional, rigorous, comprehensive uh, research matter, we basically looked at a lot of metrics going from the top to the bottom of the income statement, bottom meaning net income before extraordinary, let's say, divided by book or assets. And what we found is that generally profitability, whether you focus on the top, middle or towards the bottom of the income statement, you see that premium associated with more profitability uh, across um, different regions, across different segments of the markets. So it is robust to alternative definitions. However, when you go to implementation, you have to pick any measure to implement uh, profitability in your investment strategies. And this is uh, where we started thinking should we go with the measure that Robert uh, has been using and Robert as of now is an academic consultant to the emotional 
uh, or should we go with something closer to the bottom of the income statement, which is what Pharma and French have used to look at profitability back in 2006 and 2008. What we decided to do is kind of stay somewhat in the middle uh, for a few reasons, and we even put a paper explaining uh, which metric we decided to go to. Sales minus cost of goods sold uh, is kind of capturing some of the the major, obviously, the revenues and the, one of the major expenses of each company, cost of goods sold. But selling general administrative expenses is also a major expense for many companies. So we wanted to incorporate that into the uh, metric as well. And then interest expense, we also decided to include uh, in the on the expense uh, side of the uh, profitability uh, because uh, it turned out that while for many um, kind of banks in you know, financial companies, uh, it is included in cost of goods sold, not for all. For some, it was just as a standalone interest expense item, and we want to be consistent, obviously, uh, in building the metric. Uh, so we went with sales minus cost of goods sold, minus SG&A, minus interest expense. And then the question was, do you divide by assets or by book? Because you want to scale those dollar profits by something. This is where we decided to go with book equity because the PEC was already considering interest expense leverage and book equity being the difference between assets and liabilities that also reflected the leverage of the company. So it was going to become a more of a apples to apples comparison. You know, picking up on profitability, one of the interesting things I learned when we interviewed Wes Gray at Alva Architect is, you know, going back to this idea of a value composite we talked about before, you know, one of the things he, he pointed out to me is, you know, what, what you're doing by making a value composite is, you know, price to book tends to maybe load a little negatively on quality. But by putting profitability together with price to book, you really are achieving a lot of the same things you're achieving by using a value composite. I mean, would your research show the same thing? Yes. Um, actually, uh, um, probably I should have mentioned when we talked about multiple metrics is that uh, some of the one main reason why looking at price to earnings or price to cash flow uh, sorts uh, over the past 10 to 20 years would have looked better than looking at price to book sorts is exactly that. Uh, positive exposure to profitability for price to earnings, price to cash flow, since they explicitly take a portion of their profitability into consideration. And profitability, the profitability premium has been positive, unlike value in the last 10, 20 years in the US market. So any positive exposure to that premium and less exposure to the value premium, if you measure it, let's say with the Pharma French high minus low factor, would have helped you in the last 15, 20 years. Uh, and so, and the notion of what we do in terms of implementing our value strategies, for example, is we sort first on price to book in the small or large cap or all cap portion of the market. But then within that value defined universe, we actually take into consideration profitability within small cap by excluding the least profitable names. And this allows you to basically identify even uh, more effectively higher expected return stocks because what valuation theory going back to basics census is the expected return of any investment depends on the price you pay and the expected future cash flows, profitability of that company. So um, when you look at uh, the best signal for expected returns should take into consideration both the value characteristics of the company and its profitability. And that's what we do generally across all our equity strategies. Before I hand things back to Justin, I just wanted to ask about one more factor. Uh, you, you wrote an interesting paper in 2019 called Investment and Expected Stock Returns. And I believe that's what led D uh, Dimensional to begin using the investment factor in your investment process. And you found a very interesting thing in that paper in terms of a difference between how the investment factor works for smaller companies and for larger companies. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about those findings. 
Sure. Uh, let me just step back a little bit. Um, I've been mentioning valuation theory and the valuation equation. This, as you can guess, is a very robust framework for us at Dimensional how to think about drivers of returns, reliable drivers of returns. What this says is price today depends on expected future cash flow and the discount rate you apply to them. You can think of the size premium and the value premium as proxies for the price or size and value characteristics as proxies for the price you pay today for an investment. The expected future cash flows depend on the expected future profits of the company and the expected future kind of investment of the company. Uh, and that's been well known in academia uh, for many, many years. Uh, the reason why initially all the research focused on size and value was that these are observable characteristics today. So it's easier to run tests and confirm the predictions of valuation theory. The profitability and investment drivers of returns are all related to expected future uh, realizations of profitability and investment. So you need good proxies in order to test those predictions. That's why uh, generally the academic research and dimensional research took longer to kind of take a look at those. And um, 2006, Fama and French had a paper called Profitability Investment and Average Returns, where they actually tested the predictions of valuation theory about profitability and investment. And then 2008, two years later, they had another paper called The Effecting Anomalies, which also looked at those. This is where they mentioned that um, basically they confirmed the positive relation for profitability with returns, negative for future investment, because if you have to like spread more of your profits to future investment, then there's less cash flow to shareholders, the basic intuition. So less return for investors, lower return, high, if there's higher investment, more aggressive investment by the company. 2008, in their second paper related to investment, what they uh, noticed is that investment is primarily observable as a negative relation between investment and returns in micro caps and small caps. So that's something we already knew in 2008. Go forward to like 2012, we start doing the research on profitability. 2012, 2013, we do this research. We start implementing profitability systematically across our equity strategies. And then we started the work on investment as the next fifth factor uh, in uh, the power French model and the last kind of big driver of returns from that valuation framework. There are two kind of caveats with uh, investment. One, we already knew from the farm French research that we might just see it in small caps. The other one general concern with investment is that it tends to be less persistent than profitability. So would it be a good proxy for expected future investment then? We did a lot of research and basically the essence is we confirmed the finding of Farmer and French that um, the uh, negative relation between high investment, very high investment and uh, subsequent merit future return is definitely confined to small caps. And based on that research across the globe, et cetera, uh, different um, sectors, different segments of small caps, same, uh, same patterns. So what we um, decided then to uh, do for implementation is uh, incorporate the investment premium only within small caps. Wherever we have a strategy that includes small caps, within small caps, exclude high investment companies, high asset growth companies. And the reason to exclude rather than underweight in general was driven uh, in particular by what we observed as a nonlinear pattern in returns and investment. Uh, in essence, when you sort companies on asset growth, a very common proxy for investment, um, what you see is that the first kind of three, four groups, quartiles, let's say first three quartiles, 
how very similar asset grow on average. And it's the top quartile that has extremely higher, like almost like a hundred percent growth in ST in the last year. Um, so this nonlinear pattern in investment was also mirrored nicely, I'd say from an academic perspective by nonlinear pattern in returns, where the latter quartiles had very similar returns and it was the top, uh, most aggressive investment quartile that had extremely low average returns. Again, mainly in small caps and has the implementation as an exclusion in small caps. Just two follow-up questions to that. What, how do you react uh, to someone that says the, the size premium maybe over the last few decades has almost maybe been non-existent or is much smaller certainly than it's been maybe historically. Do you find any evidence of the size premium decaying? Um, no, I'd say that we recently, uh, ran a study of the magnitude of the premiums, uh, across regions and across each other's size, value and profitability using the longest periods we have, and we couldn't kind of reject, uh, the starting hypothesis that, that they are all the same across each other, across regions. First, of course, the size premium one, uh, criticism or concern we've heard in the last 10, 15 years is that the number of small cap companies has been shrinking, publicly traded, and as a result, maybe you no longer can actually even have capture a small cap premium. But uh, we actually had a uh, little study on that, uh, uh, kind of asking ourselves, is the declining number generally of uh, publicly traded companies in the US uh, affecting the capture of the size premium? And there, what we showed is, uh, not really, you actually, um, even if you confine yourself to the top 3000 names going backwards in time, you would have seen a positive, uh, and very similar size premium to, um, rather than kind of using the full universe at any point in time in history. Uh, so overall, I think this, we don't see the size premium disappearing, but it is very important how you go about capturing the size premium in the latest period, like Q1, quarter one of this year is another example of it last year as well, because um, there are segments of the small caps that have meaningfully lower expected returns. We've written a lot about those. And again, it is consistent with going back to basics to valuation theory. Within small caps, companies with low profitability, the companies that are very expensive tend to have very low average returns. Companies that are high asset growth tend to be a very low average returns. And those are the companies that typically drag down the performance of small caps. It might suggest there is no size premium. Once you exclude them from the small cap universe, the way we systematically do, uh, you actually get historically a, uh, more, uh, reliable and larger size premium. And last year, uh, kind of top, the, the top detractors from Russell 2000 were all those types of companies. Um, small, high, uh, low, um, high investment and or, uh, low profitability and very expensive. And we actually tracked them at the beginning of this year in the first quarter, where some of the biggest detractors are continuing to detract from performance as well. Sometimes I see these statistics about how many small caps are not profitable. And it's sort of scary sometimes because there's a lot more in the index that I think a lot of people, people know, um. So, uh, and it, just on the asset growth, um, uh, sort of factor, I, I wanted to, or the investment factor, you mentioned asset growth. We had Raphael Resendez from the Applied Finance Group on the podcast, and he sort of has grouped, um, there, I'm just wondering if you've ever looked at this or, or if you've done any research on this, like 
he sort of views companies that are having high asset growth, but if they're generating returns um, above their weighted average cost of capital, so they can reinvest that capital efficiently and, you know, get a premium on their investment, you actually, those end up being good investments. So, so he's sort of differentiating companies that are making investments back into the business, um, buying whether or not they're getting higher returns, um, than their, than their cost of capital. Um, have you guys ever, have you guys, have you, are you looking at that? Have you ever looked at that? What are your thoughts on it? I'm not familiar with that research. Definitely send it over. Um, when we uh, did our, uh, research on investment premium, we did look at, uh, whether the services of, uh, asset growth or the uses of asset growth, uh, the raising of capital or retaining of earnings, uh, matter for the strength of the effect. And, uh, that is in our investment premium paper. Uh, it didn't seem that, um, the, neither the services nor the usage were mat uh, materially affecting the magnitude of the premium. Uh, but, um, kind of uh, going with keeping the open mind, curious to see that research. What we found is, for example, whether it's debt, um, increasing debt, uh, how you grow your assets or increasing, um, uh, equity through equity issuance or retaining more earnings, for example, didn't really matter for. Uh, the underperformance, you still see it, no matter how, what's driving it. And similarly on the spending side of what you use that a higher, uh, bigger asset base to, to do, um, we saw similar results, but again, curious to see, and, uh, we'll take a look. Yeah. Okay. Come kind of coming up out of the factor. We're sort of, we're in the, we're in the factor, the factor reads here. So that was a good, hopefully for people that uh, are really interested in factors, that was really good, uh, valuable. Uh, discussion. I wanted to just ask you a couple other things, uh, a little bit more non-factor related coming up with the level. So we're seeing probably the highest levels of inflation that, um, you know, we've certainly seen in our lifetime. Um, and I'm just wondering what, you know, at DFA, when you're thinking about your portfolios and maybe even expected future returns out of your portfolios, um, how do you think about a period of high inflation. I'm not asking you to comment on whether or not, well, I guess to some extent, you know, whether this is transitory or longer lasting. I mean, that's the big question I think for the markets and that's what a lot of investors in the markets are wrestling with. But how do you think about that in terms of the construction of your portfolios and also maybe even the expected re returns of your portfolios? Sure. Uh, on the topic of inflation, um, last year, we already were living in a period of higher inflation. Um, so we decided that it's a good time to, um, update some research we've conducted on inflation before, uh, in the spirit of what I mentioned, uh, at the start of the uh, conversation about trying to provide robust thought leadership to our clients. We new clients uh, are going to have a lot of, and are already having lots of questions about inflation and its impact on how they should think about investing going forward. So what, uh, we did in this research paper last year is just look at, um, uh, historical relation between different, uh, asset classes, different types of investment in different premiums, like the size, value, profitability premium in periods of high and low inflation, looking at the full sample from 1927 to 2020, but also in the last 30 years, like 1991 to 2020 and defining high and low inflation based on, on, uh, what's the median in either of that of those two periods. Generally, what we found is that most asset classes, uh, outpace inflation, uh, over the long term, meaning they have positive real returns. Um, 
What we also found is that the size, value, and profitability premiums are not reliably higher or lower in higher or low inflation environment. And generally, we have um, kind of as as a result of those types of studies uh, and many others in uh, with similar findings, we don't time uh, kind of the pursuit of uh, those premiums in our portfolios. We stay focused on them all all, all day, every day in uh, across markets. Um, but uh, what the paper also highlighted is um, the uh, general misconception that energy and um, commodities are great hedges for inflation. If you want to hedge inflation, that's uh, that's a very good way to, to go. I hear this uh, all the time out there, uh, but um, and it's been saying for many years that uh, energy stocks and commodities are t 10 to 15 times more volatile than inflation. So it's not, they're not a good hedge. Good hedges for inflation are, if you want to hedge inflation, are tips or inflation swaps. They are designed to provide protection for inflation, to hedge inflation. But um, in this paper, we were studying how can we make the point about energy and commodity like more compelling. And I think eventually we did something very simple. We just plotted the um, uh, rate of inflation year on year from the 1920s to the present versus the annual returns of energy and commodity stocks. And it's just so obvious that the inflation is still teeny tiny compared to the large, huge, sometimes annual returns, positive or negative, of the uh, energy stocks or commodities. In 2020, the last period in that study is a great example where uh, inflation was positive still, uh, to, to an over 2%, but energy stocks were down 30%. This year is obviously a year where they're more kind of going in this, as of now in the same direction with energy stocks up and inflation uh, on an annual basis now over 8%. But that relation is not one-to-one -one and is not a, like, kind of um, all, all very stable. Uh, so if you want to hedge inflation, if that's your goal, tips and, infl and inflation swaps are the best instruments we have out there designed for that purpose. Uh, if you just want to worry about inflation, want to have instruments outpacing it, staying disciplined um, across uh, pretty much any asset class will do it. Hit on this a couple times, but uh, you know, you, you've talked about your educating clients. And I think one of the unique things that I know about DFA is how much time you actually spend with your advisors and investors around educating them around your investment philosophy, your process, the long-term stock, you know, stock market history of it, which I think has kind of been sprinkled throughout our conversation today. Um, but one of the things that I want to ask you is, can you just talk to the importance of this? Why the firm spends so much time and effort on educate, educating those using your investment products um, because I do think that's unique to your firm. And obviously there's a reason that you're doing it. So at the core of it, what, what is the purpose of spending, investing so much in those that are actually using your investment vehicles? Our goal at Dimensional is to deliver robust investment solutions and a great investment experience. We, we can, we can control only what we can control. Uh, I mean, we cannot control how the market is going to go a positive or negative in the next five or 10 years. But what we can help investors do is have a uh, robust portfolio 
to handle whatever comes next. We had COVID, we have a war going on. So many things could be happening that cannot be predicted easily or there. Uh, but having a best solution, it also give you kind of the peace of mind that you are kind of doing the best you can and anybody can out there with uh, the type of investment you have for a particular goal. So trying to provide investors with a good framework to know what they can control, what they cannot control, and the things that you cannot control, what can you do there uh, in terms of, I cannot control where markets are going to go, but I can control how I pursue the premiums. I know they're not going to show up every day. I expect them, but I know they won't. And as a result, what do you do then? Uh, should you be timing markets? Should it be uh, trying to kind of outguess markets? And we believe that having a long-term disciplined approach is extremely helpful, not just for improving your uh, potential of getting high expected returns from your investment, but also for actually enjoying the investment experience and having a peace of mind throughout this journey of the investment. Because many of uh, the investors out there are in uh, or it can be in the market for the long run. And if you are one of those investors that pays attention to where markets are every day and have a neighbor who has two PhDs in different fields and anytime they come visit us, he's like, did you see what happens in the market today? The, uh, the Dow Jones is like up or down 3% or the S&P. I'm like, all intermediate or short-term drivers of returns, but that's kind of the type of research I pay attention to. And I don't look at my player on K on a daily or a monthly or a quarterly basis. Yes. Try to tune out the noise. That's what we are also trying to kind of educate our clients on because uh, there's a lot of noise, a lot of unpredictable um, patterns in uh, or, or outcomes, I should say, in the data. Our nature is to try and find patterns, seek patterns, but um, there aren't many patterns in investing. Yeah, like Buffett says, you don't need 100 30 IQ to be successful in investing in the markets over time. You need the temperament to be able to control your emotions when things are, you know, uh, uncertain or scary out there. And I think, I think probably to a large extent, the education that you do, you know, helps go a long way in that regard for your clients and helping them believe in the process so that they can make it through the long term, especially when, you know, times are, are difficult in the markets. So. I have to say that uh, I meet with uh, advisors um, frequently uh, working with the national and it's so often that you meet um, investment professionals who have been working with us for many, many years, like longer than I've been at the mission and I started in 2004 and it, it, to some degree, it's basically just a way of investing to me, the right way of investing and to them, but it's like a way of investing that you can stick with for the long term. And once you kind of embrace it, um, there's nothing else that uh, seems right. Uh, just real quick, two more questions. What, um, what are some of the most exciting areas your focus, your research is focused on now? I mean, what's, what are you looking at? What's exciting to you? Is there anything, uh, new they can share with us? Oh, absolutely. Yes. We are, uh, kind of ongoing doing research and innovating in what we deliver to clients. Um, I'd say that, uh, currently on the equity side. We are collaborating with Robert Levy Marks, uh, one of the academics I mentioned on um, short-term reversal uh, and how we can capture it more effectively potentially in our portfolios. We discussed earlier uh, in our conversation about momentum and how we go about considering it in our daily investment process. 
Well, actually, we'd also consider short-term reversal, the tendency of stocks that have performed well in the last month to underperform peers in the next month or so. Um, and we have been taking it into account for a while in our daily investment process as well. People don't hear much about it because it's um, usually less known than the momentum effect uh, in the data. But um, with Robert, we've been conducting some uh, analysis on how can you actually may uh, get a cleaner signal for uh, reversal and uh, about to kind of have a paper on that and then um, start uh, refining the implementation of that in our portfolio, equity portfolio. So short-term reversal is one of our focuses. The other one is profitability growth. I mentioned there is not a good story for why momentum exists and uh, should continue to exist. There has been research and actually Robert Mary Marks again is at has done some of that research saying that fundamentally momentum is fundamental momentum, meaning that a price momentum we see in the data is actually linked in, he shows in his paper, driven by earnings momentum. Um, and profitability growth is connected to earnings momentum. Profitability growth is recent profitability growth. It's something uh, we've seen in the data is additional signal about near-term profitability, future profitability. Uh, on top of current level of profitability. And so trying to kind of connect the dots across all those uh, different phenomena out there and see can we use information in your latest quarter profitability growth relative to four quarters ago accounting for seasonality and profits. Of course, is this, can, can we use this effectively in uh, our daily investment processes? One more piece of information about differences in expected returns. Um, so that's on the equity side. On the fixed income side, we started investing in securitized debt, mortgage-backed securities, about uh, two years ago now. And um, we are putting together a, a paper on the cross-section of uh, mortgage-backed security returns, highlighting that, uh, again, the importance of having a framework. Thomas research from the 70s uh has shown us that the main driver of bond returns is the forward rate which is uh, the yield and the expected kind of appreciation of the bond potentially over the time you hold it equivalent to like prices and information in uh, stock prices for future stock returns uh, on the equity side and even in mortgage-backed securities every segment of the bond market we look at governments corporates munis and now mortgage-backed securities that type of framework uh, everywhere you get very strong evidence in support of it. So a paper on that is in the works as well. So you're busy. <laughs> oh, yes. The team is busy. It's a big team. We have over 15 right. PhDs on the team, which is kind of like a finance department in one of the uh, top schools out there. Plus a lot of other very kind of valuable members of the team. And yet um, everybody spoke about it. <laughs> wow, great. Um, just the last question. This is a standard closing question we like to ask all of our guests. And I know you you know, work mostly with financial advisors and professionals, but I want to ask, based on your experience in the markets and the research that you do, if you could impart one piece of wisdom or teach one lesson to your average investor, um, what would that be? Have a framework, ideally a robust framework. I think this is, this is where it all starts when it comes to investing. If you have a robust framework, knowing kind of what, what you can say about markets and what you cannot say about markets will inform you how you go about investing. Do you go with like uh, managers or strategies that try to kind of outguess markets? Do you not go with that? Do you go with just an index solution? 
have a framework for what you need to do if it's a long-term investment or a short-term investment, uh, what type of asset allocation will work best. Um, a framework will give you the best foundation for a good investment experience. That's great. Yeah, thank you very much for joining us today. I just want to say we value your story. We value your discipline, your long-term thought process. And I think um, folks listening to this will uh, hopefully get a lot out of this. So thank you for uh, joining us. If people want to learn more about you, your research and DFA, where can they go? So, I guess. Yeah. Even on the uh, kind of the front end, uh, where you don't need a login, you can see a lot of our research there already posted. Yes. Great. We'll put a link to that. Um, right in the show notes. So thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you guys. It's been a pleasure. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment.